Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 37. We're going to look at verses 14 through 38 this morning. Isaiah 37, 14 through 38. If you have one of our black Bibles from the bookshelf back there at the table, it's on page 632. Isaiah 37, we're going to look at 14 through 38. So now we've, we've paused our, our series through John. We've been going through John's gospel. Um, got about five chapters into it, and then we paused to do this, this Advent series. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with the word Advent, Advent means arrival. Okay, it, 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 is, it is the coming of the King, and uh, we, are, we are going through this Advent series. We've titled it Signs of the Coming King, which ties in with the main theme of John's gospel itself. John has structured his gospel around seven signs that God provides to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King who has come, so that all who believe in him might have life in his name. And so we want to see how God has shown us ahead of time through his word, especially in the Old Testament, and today even especially through his prophet Isaiah, uh, that, that, uh, that he has planned this from the very beginning. Last week we looked at what happened when Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time, when he zealously sought refuge in the king of Assyria instead of in God. Today we're going to see what happens when Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who is, who is now king in Judah, uh, when he zealously seeks God's help and protection against the very real threats of another Assyrian king. If, if last week's focus was on God's presence with his people, then this week's focus is on God's power over his enemies. God has, has uh, come to be with his people, and he also has power over his enemies and all of this is in the context of God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promises. Everything that God has said he would do, he's going to do. We'll get a reminder today of what dependence upon the Lord looks like and be encouraged to run to him without hesitation for help in the troubles uh, that we face in our lives. You've heard me say this before, but our, our goal together is to grow in dependence upon Jesus and confidence in Christ. Right? The more we depend on him, the more we'll see he's dependable, and the more dependable we see him, the more confidence we'll have in him. And the more confidence we have in him, the more we'll depend on him. And we just keep walking in step, step by step in faith with the, with the Spirit's help and the Word's help and the church's help. And so this morning we're going to see a, a picture of that. I want to pray that the Lord would open his Word to us, and, uh, and then we'll dig in. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank, we're, we're thankful that we don't have to just guess about who you are. We're thankful that we don't have to make something up every Sunday. We're thankful that we don't have to pretend but that we can come and proclaim the goodness of God through Jesus Christ and rejoice and worship and have confidence in our King and grow in deeper dependence upon him together. We pray that that is accomplished here this morning in our hearts through the proclamation of your word for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we sang a couple Christmas uh, songs again this morning and, and used some old language, some old words. The word zeal is probably not an, uh, uh, one of those words that's in your everyday vocabulary, right? 
but we all have zeal about different things. We all have zeal for different things. To be zealous is to be passionate. It's to be devoted, energetic, enthusiastic about something or someone, committed to something. When we think of zeal in those terms, I imagine that that several things come to mind that you may be zealous toward. I personally am zealous toward good coffee and, um, and, and birding, okay, bird watching, and uh, firefighting. I was a firefighter, volunteer firefighter uh, for several years. I love these things. I'm passionate about these things. Maybe for you it's a sport or a hobby. Maybe it's, a, it's politics or a, a charitable cause. But, but how would you, or how readily... Would you, how readily would I use the word zeal to describe our relationship with God himself? Are we zealous for the Lord who is zealous for us? This morning, we are going to see what God is zealous about. And here's our main idea that we're going to see from this text. God will zealously display his glory by rescuing his people and crushing his enemies so we should zealously depend on him. God will zealously display his glory. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Swallowed wrong. Uh, I don't recommend swallowing and breathing in at the same time. God will zealously display his glory by rescuing his people and crushing his enemies. And so we should zealously depend on him without hesitation, eagerly, excitedly running to him. Now, before we get into the passage, we need to get caught up on the context. Last week, if you were here, you met King Ahaz of Judah. He was being threatened by uh, the king of Israel. uh, The the kingdom of Israel had been split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah was being threatened by Israel above it and Aram above them. They were coming down. Uh, But instead of running to God for help, he ran to the king of Assyria. Assyria was the superpower of that day. But then that backfired on him royally, right? Pun intended, okay? Uh, Went right past everybody. I worked hard on that one. Just kidding. Anyway, Ahaz was this wicked king who didn't trust the Lord. He should have. He's from Judah, right? He's from the line of David himself. He should have trusted the Lord, but he was a wicked king. He didn't trust God. Even when God offered to give Ahaz a sign of his faithfulness. We talked about this last week. Carte blanche, right? Ahaz, I'll give you a sign, whatever it is. Whatever, you tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. Ahaz said, no way. Ahaz robbed God's temple of gold and silver to bribe the Assyrian king, and then he closed up God's temple, and he built altars on every street corner in Jerusalem and in Judea, in every city, so that he could worship other gods, false gods. He turned down the living God to worship dead ones. But his bribe to the Assyrian king didn't work, and instead of being Ahaz's ally, this king of Assyria became Ahaz's enemy. Now we fast forward then a few years to Ahaz's son Hezekiah, who became the king of Judah in his father's place. Uh, Assyria was still the superpower of the day, but it also had a new king named Sennacherib. Hezekiah and his father couldn't, couldn't have been more opposite from each other. Hezekiah reopened and consecrated the temple of God that his father had closed and defiled, and then he tore down (coughs) all the altars, excuse me, that his father had built for the false gods. Hezekiah then led 
all of his people back to the Lord, including the people in Israel who had already uh, been, been uh, 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 exiled by Assyria, the ones that remained in the, the broken kingdom of Israel, he invited them to come back and, and worship the Lord at his temple. He in, instituted regular and proper worship. And then he also reinstituted the Passover, which hadn't been celebrated on such a grand scale since the days of King David's son, Solomon. Hundreds of years, they failed to, to be obedient to God in this way. They failed to celebrate that. Before the, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two was the last time it was celebrated on such a grand scale. Hezekiah's story unfolds here in chapters 36 through 39 of the book of Isaiah. It's also written about in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 18 through 20, and then also in in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 32, where Hezekiah is actually compared to King David as one who relied on the Lord and did what was right in the Lord's sight. We're also told here that God was with Hezekiah. Remember last week, God's whole point was to be with his people. And we're told that he was with Hezekiah, and not one of the kings of Judah was like Hezekiah, either before him or after him. He was a king who was zealous for the Lord zealous to follow the Lord. Now remember the covenant that God made with David to make one of his ancestors a king who would sit on the throne forever. After the king of Israel was divided, Hezekiah was the first king out of all of that line of kings who actually seemed like he might fit the bill to fulfill this promise that God had made to David. Hezekiah was a good king. He was a great king. He was a faithful king. During his reign... The new king of Assyria, Sennacherib, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them, surrounding Jerusalem, the capital city. He sent his royal spokesman and his massive army to Jerusalem to to intimidate Hezekiah and the people there by, by threatening them, by mocking Hezekiah's reliance on God, and then by demanding that they surrender. And when Hezekiah heard their message, he humbled himself and he ran to the Lord's temple because that's where the Lord dwelt. And then he also sent some of his chief officers and priests to the prophet Isaiah, uh, who was there at the time. And and they sought his counsel, and they asked him to pray for the remnant of God's people who remained in Jerusalem. Isaiah told Hezekiah not to be afraid, because God would turn the king of Assyria around and send him away from Jerusalem. Sennacherib got word that the king from Cush, which is down by Egypt, uh, was, a, was approaching and, and preparing for battle. And so he pulled out of Jerusalem. He turned his attention over to that matter. But before he left, King Sennacherib of Assyria sent a letter to Hezekiah that essentially said, hey, I'm coming back. I won't forget about you. I'm coming back and Jerusalem will be mine. Give up. No other gods have been able to stop me and neither will yours. Your God won't be able to stop me either. So what, what would Hezekiah do with this letter? Would he, would he eventually buckle under Sennacherib's relentless pressure? Or would he, again, zealously depend on the Lord? That's where we pick up here in Isaiah 37, starting in verse 14. Read with me. <clears throat> Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands. He read it. And then he went up to the Lord's temple and he spread it out before the Lord. 
Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made from wood and stone by human hands. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord... Our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. When Hezekiah faced threats of danger and oppression, what did he do? He went to the temple and he prayed to the Lord. And even though he was concerned for his own safety, the words of Hezekiah's prayer were focused on something much more important in his mind, God's glory. God's glory He went to the temple because that's where God's presence dwelt. The Ark of the Covenant was kept behind the curtain in the innermost room of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the the most holy place. And on top of the Ark, there were two sculpted cherubim with outstretched wings that covered the lid, and the space in between them was known as the mercy seat. It was considered to be God's earthly throne right there in the temple. Hezekiah had a huge view of God. Look at verse 16. You made the heavens and the earth. He understood God's preeminence over all things. We've seen this in John's gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Not one thing that was created was created apart from him, right? Hezekiah understood God's preeminence over all things. You are God alone, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Hezekiah understood God's authority over all things. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He rules the rulers. He called God Lord of armies. Hezekiah understood God's power to defend his throne and his people. He also understood God's personal relationship with his people. He called God God of Israel, God of Israel, it's the covenant name. The creator God was the covenant God of Hezekiah and his people. And so Hezekiah did not hesitate to turn and run to this God for help. We could sum up his prayer this way. Lord, I know that you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Now save us from King Sennacherib's power, from the power of the most powerful king of the most powerful nation in the world right now in this day, so that all the kingdoms of the earth will also know that you alone are God. Hezekiah was very honest about the very real threat that he faced. The kings of Assyria were were a force to be reckoned with. They had devastated countries and destroyed those gods of those countries. No one had been able to stop them from imposing their will. But all the gods of the other countries were made by human hands, Hezekiah tells us, right? Those gods were created. They are not the creator. It cannot be said of them, you created the heavens and the earth. They didn't have the ability to hear or to see like the Lord of armies does. Sennacherib rightfully mocked these gods that were made from wood and stone, but he went too far. His pride welled up in him. 
and he went too far when he turned his mocking toward the living God. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, may have overcome man-made gods, but no man can overcome the one who is God alone, the God of Israel. Now, Hezekiah's hair, uh, uh, prayer is helpful for us. It shows us that honest and desperate prayers are not faithless prayers, Right? But it also shows us that faithful prayers are not fluffy prayers either. We don't have to pretend like things are no big deal when they really are. These are not Facebook and Instagram prayers that he's praying. These are not staged and set up things where we we, we make ourselves look good in front of everyone else. He's honest about the things that he's facing. We don't have to pretend like things are no big deal when they really are. Like Hezekiah, we can lay out all the details of our situation before the Lord in prayer. This is the joy. This is the, the, the beauty that we have as believers. We get to take everything to the Lord. And God invites his people to be honest about the things that we face that overwhelm us and cause us to fear. He already knows every detail. None of it's new to him. But he still listens closely to every concern we bring to him. And he opens his eyes and he sees us because he's our God. Sometimes when I know what my kids are going to say to me, I, I get a little impatient and try to speed it along. You ever been there? God doesn't do that with us. Aren't you glad? He knows us. He knows our needs. And he, he listens patiently as we confess those things to him because he's our God. Hezekiah's prayer not only invites us to be honest about our situations, but it also reminds us to honestly hold those situations in the proper perspective. Humanly speaking, Hezekiah was no match for King Sennacherib. Assyria is the strongest nation. He's the strongest king in the world. But Hezekiah wasn't looking at it from a human perspective. He knew that Sennacherib's threats were ultimately directed at a much greater king, a king who does not give his glory to another. Sennacherib wasn't just mocking Hezekiah, he was mocking the living God. Are there, are there people, are there things, situations that are overwhelming you right now? Are they, are they robbing you of peace and threatening your security? We need to ask these questions about these things. Did they create the heavens and the earth? Do they rule over the kingdoms of the earth? Do they command armies of angels? Do they know you better than God does? I don't say these things sarcastically. I say these things honestly. These are the things that we need to ask. We proclaim these things about our God, the living God, the one who is actually these things are true about. How quickly do we dismiss those, though? when something comes close to us that threatens all of that. These people, these things may intimidate you, but they will never intimidate the Lord our God. Run to him. Run to him without hesitation, with zeal. Go and pray. We don't need to dismiss our hardships as if they aren't hard, but listen, we also should never dismiss God as if he isn't God. 
Hezekiah's prayer also helps us understand that it's not wrong to want to be rescued from our situations or to ask God to rescue us. There's a tension that we hold as believers, right? Where we talked about this last week. Jesus promises that we will face trials. He promises that we will have trouble as believers. And he says, take heart for I've overcome the world, right? In this world, you'll have trouble. And yet there's this, there's this longing for us to be rescued from these things. We don't just lay down and let them run over us. We continue to come to the Lord of glory and seek his help. It's not wrong for us to want to be rescued from our situations or to ask God to rescue us, but it does help us think about our motives behind our request. We see Hezekiah's request in verse 20. It says, now, Lord God, our God, save us from his power. Save us from Sennacherib's power. But we also see Hezekiah's motivation right there. So that, those are important words, Save us from Sennacherib's power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. It's one thing to ask God to help us so that we have an easier life. It's a whole different thing to ask God to help us so that his glory is revealed and hearts are turned toward him, that people would see him for who he truly is. Sometimes God is more glorified by giving us the strength to endure a situation rather than removing the problem altogether. Many of you know this firsthand. May God give us the grace that we need to seek his glory more than our own comfort as we entrust ourselves to his perfect care. Hezekiah prayed. He zealously prayed, help me, Lord, and glorify yourself. And the Lord zealously answered Hezekiah's prayer. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message, a message to Hezekiah. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, because you prayed to me about King Sennacherib of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. Who is it that you have mocked and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? against the Holy One of Israel. You have mocked the Lord through your servants. You've said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I cut down its tallest cedars, its choice cypress trees. I came to the, its distant heights, its densest forest. I dug wells and drank water in foreign lands. I dried up all the streams of Egypt with the soles of my feet. I, 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 I. I. Look at what God told Hezekiah in verse 21. Because you prayed. Because you prayed to me. God listened to Hezekiah's prayer and he responded. Sometimes we pray and we wonder if God is listening, right? We wonder if he's listening. Maybe he is, but then we wonder if he'll actually answer. Sometimes we, we pray and we wonder if it's even worth it. Like, God already knows, and, and, and he's sovereign over all things. I think the Bible makes that really clear. He's in control of everything. If he already knows and he's in control of it all, he's going to do whatever he wants to anyway, right? So then why does prayer matter? Why should we pray? Here's why. Because the sovereign Lord has determined to carry out his sovereign will 
through the prayers of his people. Prayer is the means by which God carries out his plans. He invites us to participate in the unfolding redemptive story by praying to him and asking him to do his will. We don't pray to direct God. We shouldn't pray to direct God. I know my prayers sometimes have been geared that way. Lord, just do this, right? We don't pray to direct God. We pray because God has directed us to pray. And he delights in answering the prayers of his people when we pray according to his will. And we can never go wrong when we pray that God would glorify himself. Even as we ask him to rescue us. Even as we ask him to heal our sickness or take care of our families or do whatever it is that's on our minds. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Because Hezekiah prayed to the Lord about King Sennacherib, the Lord, the God of Israel, also had some words to say about King Sennacherib. Back in chapter 36, Sennacherib said, Who among all the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? Rhetorical answer, nobody. Nobody yet. And then he asks this, So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? No God has stood up to me yet. Will yours? He was mocking God by lumping him in with all the false gods that he had defeated. So God said, hey, you want to stir the hornet's nest? Do you really know who you're messing with? You are mocking the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One, the Righteous One, the Perfect One, God Almighty. And by the way, He is the God of the people that you are attacking. Remember Psalm 2? The nations rage. And what's the Lord's response? He laughs and he ridicules. Here he mocked the mocker. Sennacherib, you think that you have Jerusalem shaking in their sandals, but I have them shaking their heads behind your back. In, in chapter 36, Sennacherib asked the people of Jerusalem, who are you now relying on that you have rebelled against me? And God countered with a question of his own here to Sennacherib, who is it that you have mocked and blasphemed? Who are you rebelling against? And the answer to both questions is the Holy One of Israel, the God who is God alone and the Lord of all the kingdoms of the earth. God mocked the mocker. He questioned the questioner and then he boasted over the boaster. Look at verse 26. Have you not heard? I designed it long ago. I planned it in days gone by. I have now brought it to pass, and you have crushed fortified cities into piles of rubble. Their inhabitants have become powerless, dismayed, and ashamed. They are plants of the field, tender grass, grass on the rooftops, blasted by the east wind. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Psalm 2. Because of your raging against me and your arrogance, because those things have reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you go back the way you came. Sennacherib boasted about all of his exploits for his own glory. I did these things. I, 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 I. We just read those things, right? 
but he failed to realize that God was using him as an instrument to carry out God's plans for God's glory. Back in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 7 through 7, God says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send him against a godless nation. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, and to trample them down like the clay in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he plans. It is his intent to destroy and to cut off many nations. Sennacherib's plans were governed by God's plans. He could do no less than God wanted him to do, and he could go no further than God wanted him to go. God is not directed by man's movements. Man's movements reveal God's established plan. Sennacherib boasted as if he were God, but in reality, he was only raging against the one true God. Just as Assyria directed its prisoners by hooks in their noses and its horses by bits in their mouths, so too God would use the same tactics against Assyria and its king. He would direct them. He would turn them around. Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. The Lord of armies has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned it, so it will happen. I will break Assyria in my land. I will tread him down on my mountain. Then his yoke will be taken from them and his burden will be removed from their shoulders. This is the plan prepared for the whole earth. And this is the hand stretched out against all the nations. The Lord of armies himself has planned it. Therefore, who can stand in its way? It is his hand that is outstretched. So who can turn it back? Powerful words. Powerful words. God planned to turn back the king of Assyria, and not even the king of Assyria, the strongest ruler of the strongest nation in the world, could turn back God's plan. God would turn him back. And after declaring that what he would do to Sennacherib, God reassured Hezekiah by telling him what he would do for the remnant of Judah. Look at verse 30. This will be the sign for you. This year you will eat what grows on its own, but in, and in the second year, what grows from that? But in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For a remnant will go out from Jerusalem and survivors from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. In chapter 36, Sennacherib's royal spokesman tried to intimidate the people of Jerusalem by telling them that they were destined to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine because Assyria would devastate their land. Pretty serious threat. But if they made peace with Assyria and they surrendered, then every person would be allowed to eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until the king of Assyria came in and, and took them away to a foreign land that was, was overflowing with uh, grain and new wine. Sennacherib was claiming to have control over the, the provisions here, and he was claiming that his land was better than theirs. But God would prove him wrong. God would give his people a sign of his faithfulness to preserve them as a remnant in Jerusalem. They wouldn't be able to plant or harvest for two years because of the devastation that Assyria brought upon the land. But God himself would make the land fruitful. 
and he would provide food for his people. And by the third year, all traces of Sennacherib's impact would be gone. Hey, I will take care of you for these first two years, and then I will give you over to farming and providing the food. The importance of the sign went beyond God's ability to keep his people from going without food and water, though. If, if he was able to preserve the land, the land that was ravaged by Assyria, how much more so would he be able to preserve his people from Assyria's wrath? And let's not forget that God used Assyria as a rod of discipline against his people because they turned away from God. They rebelled. They worshiped other gods. This sign that God gave them was also a reassurance that although God himself disciplined them severely, he would not destroy them completely. I will take care of you. I will preserve the remnant as I have promised. God promised to replant this remnant and make them fruitful once again. Verse 31 here echoes a promise that God made back in in chapter 27 when he referred to his people as a, a vineyard. Isaiah 27, 6. In the days to come, Jacob will take root Israel will blossom and bloom and fill the whole world with fruit. This remnant, God said, would go out from Jerusalem and and survivors from Mount Zion, not just for their benefit, but for the benefit of the whole world. That sounds an awful lot like God keeping his promise to bless the world through Abraham and his descendants, doesn't it? All the way back in Genesis, God's keeping his promise. And what does he say? The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. That was God's promise to Hezekiah in verse 32. Now we have the joy of being able to say, the zeal of the Lord of armies has accomplished this. God's promise to restore his vineyard would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who as we will see in John 15 is the true vine. You ever wonder why he calls himself the vine? And all who are rooted in him will bear much fruit. Jesus came to Jerusalem, but not to conquer the city. He came to conquer sin and to rescue his people who were enslaved by it. The God of Israel took on flesh and he became a human being. The Father designed it long ago. He planned it in days gone by and he has now brought it to pass. His one and only son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect earthly life of zealous obedience to the Father, not failing in one area, perfect and sinless. And then the one enthroned between the cherubim was crucified between two thieves to pay the penalty for rebellious sinners and receive God's righteous wrath in their place. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. But instead of coming down from the cross and saving himself from the situation, the Lord of armies endured the cross to the point of physical death so that God would be glorified through the salvation of sinners from spiritual death. The Holy One of Israel was buried in the ground and after three days he rose from the grave so that all of the kingdoms of the earth may know that he is God and he alone. And all who turn from their sins and trust in him will be saved from the most fearsome enemies of sin and death and Satan because they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. All who zealously run to him in faith will take root downward in Christ 
and bear fruit upward. Have you put your faith in this Jesus? Are you rooted in him or are you raising your voice against him? Why not raise your voice along with all who depend on him in prayer and confess your need for him? He will listen closely and he will hear. He will bend his ear to you. He will open his eyes and see. He will save you from the power of the enemy because he alone is God and he zealously displays his glory by rescuing his people and crushing his enemies. And if you need more proof, then we need to go no further than these last verses of the chapter. Look at verse 33. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. He will not shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came. And he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home, and he lived in Nineveh. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. And then his son Azarhaddon became king in his place. Not even one arrow is let loose apart from God's say-so. A lot of stuff going on in our world right now. Not even one missile is let loose apart from our God's say-so, apart from God's grand plan. Sennacherib may have been the king of the strongest nation in the world at the time, but none of his might could stand up to the Lord's power, and none of his plans could stand up to the Lord's plans. Sennacherib wanted to enter the city and lay siege to it, but God promised to make him go back the way he came. And that's exactly what happened. What took place in the camp of the Assyrians was a terrifying display of God's might. But it's mentioned here almost as, as an afterthought because of the ease with which God carried it out. One angel of the Lord versus 185,000 well-trained soldiers of the strongest army in the world. It wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. The angel of the Lord wiped them out without even breaking a sweat. Imagine being in Jerusalem and waking up to that sight the next morning. When Sennacherib saw it, he broke camp and he went back the way he came. He returned home just as God said he would. Remember Sennacherib's question to Hezekiah? Who among all the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? When he woke up that morning, he got his answer. And so did the Israelites. So did the people of Judah. And in a fitting twist of irony, this is what it looks like for God to laugh. 
when the nations rage and God laughs and he ridicules. This is how God responds. In a fitting twist of irony, the one who mocked the living God could not be saved by his own false god. Sennacherib went to the temple of his god and he was assassinated by his own sons. They struck him down with the sword. Back in verse 7, we didn't read it this morning, but it's in this chapter. God said this about Sennacherib, Isaiah 37, 7. I'm about to put a spirit in him and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and where I will cause him to fall by the sword. Details matter. Sennacherib's own God couldn't save him from the God of Israel. He went to the temple of his God and he was struck down. What happened at the beginning of our our passage where we picked up, Hezekiah went to the temple of his God and he was saved. The Holy One, the God of Israel who is alone God, king over all the kingdoms of the earth. This God is zealous for his own glory and that means he's zealous for his own people. In verse 35, he said, I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake, for my glory, and for the sake of my servant David. God had made a covenant promise to put one of David's uh, descendants on the throne forever, and he zealously kept that promise. Hezekiah was a great king, but he was not a forever king. He was a mortal man. Chapter 38 tells us how he became terminally ill. And then he prayed again to the Lord. And the Lord heard his prayer and added 15 years to his life. But Hezekiah was also a fallible man. Chapter 39 tells us how he let pride get the best of him when he received a different king's letter, a king from Babylon. This Babylonian king had heard that Hezekiah was sick and that he had recovered. And God had done this miraculous sign to show him that. And he was curious to hear more about it. But instead of taking this king's letter and spreading it out in the temple before the Lord like he had done with Sennacherib's letter, Hezekiah was pleased with what he heard and he showed the king's ambassadors everything in his palace and in his realm from his wealth to his weapons. And as a result of Hezekiah's pride, the Lord said that a day would come when everything in Hezekiah's palace would be carried off to Babylon and some of his descendants would be taken away and become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. But the exile wouldn't happen in Hezekiah's lifetime. You know how Hezekiah responded? Sounds good to me. At least I'll be fine since this doesn't take place until after I'm gone. So close, Hezekiah, right? Did all these great things, reformed the, the, the worship, brought, opened the temple, reestablished the Passover, still had pride in his heart. Hezekiah followed God faithfully in many ways, but he still failed to follow God perfectly. He was a great king, but he was not the promised Messiah. Hezekiah needed to be rescued from more than just the king of Assyria and more than even the king of Babylon. He needed to be rescued from his own sin. He needed a forever king, and the forever king was yet to come. But until the forever king arrived, God would zealously defend his people and rescue them for his sake, for his glory, and for the sake of his servant David. I made a promise to him, God said, and I intend to keep it. Now that forever king, Jesus Christ, has come. 
This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And we who have put our trust in him are the faithful remnant. We are the remnant now that God has zealously defended and will continue to zealously defend and, until, uh, until our forever King Jesus comes again for his own glory. And he completes his forever kingdom once and for all. Until then, let's be zealous. Let's be ever increasingly zealous about running to our defender and trusting him to preserve us through every trial for his glory and our good. He may not remove every threat in every circumstance, but we must remember that every threat we face is temporary at best. We sang about that this morning. Be still and remember the worst that may come but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Every threat is temporary at best because God has already removed the forever penalty of our sin. He's already removed forever the penalty of our sin and he's rescued us from the power of our greatest enemy, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, the thief who steals and kills and destroys the devil himself. And that glorious day is coming. It's coming. Do you know this? It's coming. When every last enemy, including death itself, will be crushed fully and finally under the feet of Jesus in all the kingdoms of the earth, without exception, will know that Jesus Christ is God alone. God will zealously display his glory by rescuing his people and crushing his enemies. So we should zealously depend on him. Let's depend on him in prayer as we depend on his promises and his power to keep them. And let's pray with great confidence. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your zeal for us. And we pray that you would make us zealous for you more and more with each passing day as we grow more and more confident in Christ, our King, forever. We ask this for his glory and our good. Amen.